You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is Dino Don Lessam. Hey, should I call you Dino or call you Don? <laughs> Mister. <laughs> Whatever you want. All right. If you're under 10, you should call me Dino. <laughs> Mr. Dino, you got it. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Don. Thanks very much for, for coming on. And your nickname is a part of your background and your story. The listeners should check out your bio in the show notes, of course, which kind of detail at a higher level your your history. But um, really looking forward to hearing your story. You have such a unique background and how you came into uh, becoming an author of more than 50 popular science books, specifically about dinosaurs. You are also the founder of the Dinosaur Society and the Jurassic Foundation, which collectively have raised millions of dollars for dinosaur research. And you're the CEO and founder of Dino Don Incorporated, an animatronics company specializing in dinosaurs, dragons, and sea creatures. And you're also, it says here on your Wikipedia page, an anti-Trump political advocate. We won't, activist, we won't get into that part, but, um, <laughs> but we'll just focus on, on uh, prehistoric dinosaurs, if you will. Um, <laughs> nice, Tony. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. All right. So cool. Just, let's dive right in. Tell us how, start all the way back with your time at the Boston Globe. How did you get that gig going out of school and then walk us up to becoming essentially a dinosaur expert? Sure. Um, actually, go back a little further, if you don't mind. I love science always. I was a dinosaur fan, like all kids, until eight or nine, and then got interested in baseball and girls, and still interested in baseball and girls. <laughs> so I, uh, as a grown-up, was very interested in becoming a scientist, but I found that it's incredibly rigorous, and for me, incredibly boring. You sit there, I was studying primatology, and you write down every five minutes, gorilla scratches his butt, gorilla scratches his butt. <laughs> There's only so much of that I can take. But the scientists have trouble talking to people, I don't. So I thought there's a role for me as some kind of a middleman to tell the stories of science. So I really was concentrating about uh, rainforests, other environmental threats with endangered species. And that's what I got to writing for the Boston Globe. And then one day, this, you know, the Sunday magazine editor said, you know, there are these two crazy guys who are famous paleontologists. I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, go, go out west. This is when newspapers had money. Uh, uh, it's actually... Whoa, 1988. Wow. And uh, and go write about these guys. I thought, okay. And I loved it. It wasn't so much the animals. It was the search for things that you don't know where they are. Uh, what You know, it's not brain surgery exactly. It's very hands-on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so it's accessible to learn. And then there's fascinating results. So I had a fellowship for a year for mid-career journalists at MIT. I mean, I could do anything I wanted. So I thought, I'm going to go to every dinosaur dig in the world. There are only 35 guys working on dinosaurs. Wow. And then write a book about it, which I did. And then nobody read it. So <laughs> I realized the audience is children. And so I started writing kids' books. And then Nova, the TV show, is based in Boston. And one of my fellow graduates of this program at MIT ran, the, ran Nova and still does 35 years later. So uh, 
I, we talked about a show and I ended up hosting a documentary. Uh, at the same time, I was still working for the Globe and somebody said, there's this new book coming out called Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And you should interview the author, Michael Crichton. I said, okay. So I did. And, and at that point, uh, I had started this charity. I felt like these writers, these writers, I'm sorry, these scientists, they had no money. And mm-hmm. here we are popularizing dinosaurs, people making a fortune off them. Right. And the people who are responsible for the information, the scientists, you know, can't even buy new clothes. So uh, I talked to Crichton about it and he said, you know, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so he said, let me help you. And I'll introduce you to this guy Spielberg. We're making a movie out of wow. this thing. Wow. Uh, and I said, okay, yeah, I heard of him. So, uh, so I, went, I went to work on the movie and, wow. you know, by the time you get there, they've already storyboarded this two years in advance. Mm-hmm. If I can do a tangent, this is a great business story. Yeah. Spielberg is in addition to a great director, a great businessman. So, uh, it, the movies are always concerned you go over budget. Right. So he made a deal with universal studios. Do you know this story? I don't know. Please tell. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's commonly known. So the story was, you have 28 days to film this movie. Not very long for a Jeez. movie. Especially one that revolutionary for, for its time period to begin with. Yeah. I mean, no one had modeled dinosaurs digitally and with CGI to the level that that, that movie did before that, right? So, wow, Absolutely. 28 days, geez. So uh, every day you go over, it's going to cost you a million dollars. Jeez. And, and in exchange you get a third of the gross of this movie. Wow. So he storyboarded this, you know, made these cartoon drawings of every scene and every angle, uh, had the robot builders working, all these people two years in advance. So when it got to shooting, every single thing was already laid out. Mm-hmm. And of course, he finished three days early. He made $333 million. Wow. As in the minor way that it affected me, by the time I got there as an advisor, I go into Stan Winston Studios, and there's all these dinosaurs on a rack already. And I said, these raptors are like three times the size of what they ought to be. <laughs> and, and they said, shut up. And I said, why are they so big? They said, they're suits. We can only do so much with the, uh, animation, right. with CG, and so much with robotics. We have a kitchen scene coming up where, where the velociraptors have to jump on the table. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with either of those methods. So we're going to hire the guys who play Ninja Turtles and they're going to jump up on the counter. Wow. And that's why we have to make these raptors so big. I realized right then that they really didn't want any science information. They just wanted somebody's <laughs> name to stick on there. <laughs> so when they got to shooting, um, they were shooting in the Mojave Desert. And that was the first scenes where you see dinosaurs in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. being excavated. And I'm way in the back of like a hundred people, you know, all the techs and then the crew and they're lighting the desert in the middle of the day. That's how powerful all their stuff is. Wow. And Laura Dern says something about all oh, this fossil that's here that we're looking at on this screen took, you know, a thousand years to get in this kind of bowed shape. And I'm thinking, that's bullshit. Excuse me. <laughs> you get rigor mortis when you die. If you're a person, you get stiff. If you're a dinosaur, your tail curls up. I said, this happens like instantly. So wow. the woman I'm with, who's like the 14th assistant director, says, wait a minute. Goes all the way up to the front where Spielberg is and says, this is wrong. And he said, who said that? And I thought this is like one of these old Merrill Lynch commercials, you know, where <laughs> they're going to throw me out. And I hadn't even gotten the shrimp from the buffet, you know, it's like, I <laughs> so 
I come up there and rewrite the lines. Wow. And then I noticed that all the actors are wearing like button down shirts. And I said, this is ridiculous. You know, people don't bathe for a week on a dig. And they said, well, we're, we don't have any like dirty t-shirts. And I said, I have a whole suitcase of dirty t-shirts. <laughs> so that was my contribution to the movie. <laughs> two lines and a dirty t-shirt. <laughs> Afterwards, a factual correction in some dirty clothing. Awesome. <laughs> right. So I'm the last guy on the credit. Spielberg is the first guy. So obviously it's inverse order of importance. Right. Um, and at the end, uh, you know, they have a rap party, WR. Mm -hmm. And they usually give like a Mercedes to the stars and stuff. And his assistant called and said, Stephen thinks this is stupid. These guys already have a lot of cars. You mentioned in discussion with him, because I would talk to him a fair amount I was the only person who didn't want anything. So he was happy wow. to be talking to somebody who wasn't asking him for shit. So I, <laughs> an I important lesson there department. to begin with, I think. <laughs> right. I actually did want something, but not for myself. So right. uh, I told him, you know, for $25,000, you can get a dinosaur named after you. Well, he said, I don't want one named after me. For the rap party, why don't you make bronze plaques for all the actors and name a dinosaur after them? So we took a new discovery in China, gave the guy a lot of money, and he named this dinosaur Jurassosaurus. And then the, there's a species name like Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm -hmm. So instead of the Rex part, it was two letters of every actor's name. Wow. Neil, Dern, Goldblum. So it came out Netagoa Perfurcumorum, which is a mouthful. Yeah. So they all got a bronze plaque. I wasn't at the party, but I would have loved to have seen their faces like, oh, no, I wanted a car. And they gave me a <laughs> stupid dinosaur. I was hoping for a Benz and you named some <laughs> some prehistoric uh, discovery after me instead. Right. Yeah. It's well, a little bit a longer lasting, longer. though, than than uh, cars these days, at least. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a dinosaur named after me and usually you have to be dead to get one. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. What, what the point of the story actually is that at the end of the movie, I said, well, you know, there's nothing much that I could do from the movie. Actually, we printed a million copies of my children's newspaper mm -hmm. that they gave out to promote the movie. But it increased the subscriptions a little bit. It really didn't raise money for this charity. Mm -hmm. I said, I, you know, could I have everything that's in the movie? And uh, actually, he had a very clever PR guy who's still his PR guy. He looks like E.T. and he's about 100 <laughs> years old, Marvin. And I said, Marvin, I want to get all this stuff. So he knows how to do it. He said to Spielberg, uh, Don would like to borrow the Triceratops. And he, Spielberg said, sure. So Marvin called up Universal Studios and said, Stephen wants to give all these things, all the props for the movie. Because he knew at that point that Spielberg wasn't going to argue with it. Mm -hmm. So every single thing that was in the movie, we got it. We made an exhibition about what's wrong with the movie. Wow. And, it, and all the proceeds went to research. So that was the first that I had gone to building an exhibition. And I loved it. You know, you write an article, you know, it's the same actually as, as doing a podcast. You probably hear most from the people who are kicked off and, and only a small <laughs> right. part of your audience. Right, right. Exactly. You know, and then I look in the newspaper, you look the next day and it's at the bottom of the birdcage. So mm -hmm. uh, doing an exhibit, you see the people's reactions right there. Something doesn't work. You can change it at any point. And so I think it's a great medium for presenting stories. Mm -hmm. Very it interesting. Very interesting. It was a very successful exhibit, too. So we raised $3 million, and I got off into the exhibition business. Wow. There we go. And and so, first of all, even to, to get selected or the opportunity to work on a film like that and to meet and talk to and interact with Steven Spielberg, you say it with such ease, like it was like almost, you know, 
eh, it's just this thing that happened to me. <laughs> but, but at the same time, it's kind of incredible, right? You start out a journalist. And over the course of three or four years, you go from being a journalist to all of a sudden being an expert on dinosaurs and working on a major Hollywood motion picture. So how did you, you let's, you get introduced to Michael Crichton. Let's start with that part. Cause I think that's, that's even more uh, pivotal in all of this. You get yeah. introduced to Michael Crichton. What's your mindset going into that meeting and how did you ensure that you built that sort of no like and trust so quickly with him that he was able to trust you to, to give him feedback and then to pass you on to Spielberg for the film. Yeah, I think um, it has mostly to do with his being a very generous person. I mean, he didn't want people to know, but after the movie, he said, I made a lot of money from this. I want to give a couple hundred thousand dollars to research. Where should I give it? And But I don't want anybody to know that I did this. So he was philanthropic, first of all, and a very nice guy. So he took an interest in this. From my point of view, I didn't know how to run a charity. And so instead of thinking that I should get donors, you know, the board and stuff, I thought, how am I going to raise money from various industries or something, you know? So my pitch mm -hmm. was, just as I told you, these guys, you're making money off these guys. And, you know, most writers or filmmakers would say, screw you. It's just, you know, dinosaurs don't have an agent. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> and he, is a, you know, was a very thoughtful person. And he said, yeah, you're right. You know, I owe something back. So, uh, and he knew I wasn't making any money from it and that it wasn't the best run thing in the world. So he gave useful advice and made this good connection. The other part of it is, Tony, that everybody has the things that they're intimidated about. Uh, the story that mm -hmm. I tell you, and you mentioned, you know, some, for other people, it might be intimidating. For me to talk to a famous scientist right. is intimidating. Steven Spielberg, well, he's a nice guy. He's very good at his job. But big deal. And all these people, like I remember on the movie, they were saying, like, <laughs> you have Steven's hat and, you know, you're talking to Steven and, you know, like they're angry. But I'm, right. I said, so what? You know, what's the big deal? And one of them said, <laughs> uh, you know, you're never going to see him again. I said, yeah, it's OK. You know, he's a nice guy. What are, we don't do the same kind of things. Why should I see him again? And they were wrong right. because right. one day I was at Universal in the bathroom and he was at the next urinal. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> We kept up a close relationship after the movie. Oh, that's great. That's Actually, awesome. You know, I'm sorry, Tony, but but the funny thing was that after the movie did so well, Universal hadn't thought of being in the exhibition business. This was a very early time for these blockbuster exhibits. King Tut had been, so I'd sort of stumbled on it, on what was a great industry for them. And they saw that they could make a lot of money. And so I they offered me a job to head up an exhibition branch of this. And they said, we'll give you an office here in the fancy building and stuff. I lived in Boston and, uh, you know, we'll pay you six figures, which is way more than I was making. And I said, well, this, this sounds a little interesting. Uh, what am I, what, what's can I do with that? Well, we want to make an exhibit about the making of a theme park. I said, okay, I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> I'm not there. To, I don't want to promote their industry. Right. So there were chat, you know, you get a lot of opportunities in life that you just sort of stumble on. If, you take chances. To me, there's, this is, you know, what you're talking about in your podcast is it, you, there's no reason not to fail. What happens if you fail? You try again. Um, just means, you know, took you a little longer to find the thing that you want to do. So when I started as a writer, same philosophy, start at the top and, you know, and work your way down. 
instead of the other way around. So I would write to famous writers and say, here's my stuff. You know, a lot of them didn't answer, but some of the guys said, oh, you know, you have promise and I'll talk to somebody about what you can do. It's, you know, the same thing with this. It's like, you know, try it. And, you know, it's not brain surgery to do exhibits either. So if you can, mm-hmm. you sort of, if you can soak the stuff in of how to do it, mm-hmm. then you, you know, you, you do it well or pretty well. And then over time, you learn your own, how to put your own stamp on things and add your creativity. So part of it for me, too, is that I have kind of an ADD personality. <laughs> we share that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're putting it to good use. Seriously, you're, you're like interviewing other people about mm-hmm. what's of interest to you and the public. And then you're learning stuff as you do it. Right. You'll apply to yourself to whatever you're doing with the podcast and everything else. So, you know, it's. For me, it was take all those like urges and try to do every single thing possible with dinosaurs rather than go all over the map because I'm interested in clams and, and uh, you know, uh, dodos and everything. But nobody wants right. to read a book about clams or go to see a movie about <laughs> clams. So channel my interests and changing interests into one subject. Um, interesting, interesting. I've never heard it put so succinctly, by the way. I, I think you hit one out of the park there with your concept of not only we've all heard this before, you know, like Thomas Edison, you know, failed a thousand times, et cetera. Right. And, uh, you know, you need to fail to succeed all of those things. But I've never heard anyone put it into the perspective of not only knowing, OK, you're going to fail and you need to, to go for it and aim high. But you actually said, start at the top and just kind of work your way, you know, down to the where you start to, I guess, gain some traction and then you gain your momentum and work your way back up. Right. Yeah. And the other part of that is that you have a dream. You're starting at the top because you have an idea of where you want Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, you probably won't get there. I'm still there's still layers of people way above me and their accomplishments. But Mm -hmm. if you start there, you have a model. And you have a goal and you have a structure of what these people do. And this is what, where I want to get to. Um, I think that's the other part of when all these business guys talk about how, oh yeah, I failed twice before I did it. Well, they also had huge motivation and a Mm -hmm. goal. So there are people who failed two times and that's the end of them. That's right. Most of the people. So it's the drive to do it. So, you know, uh, I have people working for me now and I tell them, you know, it's, you know, that stupid thing with the perspiration and the inspiration. Uh, <laughs> not quite, it's not quite that. <laughs> it's more about you have, you have first get the really good idea and then you have to persist because it's like with actors, nine, there's millions of talented actors. Why are these people on TV and not the others? Either they slept with a director or, <laughs> or I hope more likely they, um, they pursued it aggressively. I mean, you have to have that underlying talent, but a lot right. of people have the talent and, and don't do it. And um, the other part of it, I guess, is, and I took me a long time, it took me until three years ago, and I'm 68, to quite find that if you want to make money, which was not my goal, my money, my goal was to do something that's interesting. And so that changes and that leads me to change what I'm doing. But then I got to be 65 and I didn't have any money. Uh, saved up. I was doing fine. I had a nice life. I realized, right. you know, I'm like a grasshopper. I would need to be more of an ant. I got to put together some money because at some point I'm going to be a vegetable and somebody's <laughs> have to <laughs> water the garden here. Um, right. So 
to me, the, the secret of making money, at least in the creative end of things, one is to control your idea, which is very hard to do. The intellectual property. That's, that's a whole other story about how to do that. But the, the other half of it is you have to keep doing the same thing over and over. That's what it's to me invidious about making money. You know, because you learn more and more about how to do it, but it gets boring to me. I want to move on to right. the next thing. Right. Um, so with robotics, finally, uh, it's enough of the same, but I can find wrinkles in it to want to keep doing it. And it turns out to be just serendipitously. There's almost no competition. There's a level of uh, um, quality that I can achieve. Um, what happened with that was, um, so I did all these exhibitions. They did fine. I have one about Genghis Khan, who I loved, and a lot mm -hmm. about dinosaurs. The other thing I did didn't particularly make money, but it was certainly enterprising. I would go to every year to, to hear what happened in research by going to the annual convention of paleontologists. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you missed it. But <laughs> I was not at this year's uh, convention. What a no, party. Sorry. The worst dressed <laughs> bunch of people. So it's in the fall. <laughs> and what it means is that before they publish the papers, they're talking to their colleagues about what I did with my summer vacation, basically. What did I find? So it's a great way to get, as a reporter, what the story's going to be before anybody else mm -hmm. does. Right. But at this point, I was going into business and exhibits. And the young people don't get to give a talk because they're not important enough. They're grad students. They post these uh, poster boards of what they're working on. I walk past one of these boards, uh, one of these meetings, and there's this giant bone. And I know enough to know what a meat eater bone looks like, you know, it's basically like a big mm -hmm. drumstick. Mm -hmm. And I said to the guy who's from Argentina, that's the biggest meat eater bone in the world. It's bigger <laughs> than a T-Rex. Well, scientists aren't necessarily about the bigger. They're, they're much more about other issues. We said right. very casually, talk about casual, yeah, it's about 10% bigger than the T-Rex. I said, whoa, this is the coolest discovery of like the last 30 years for, wow. for guys like me and 10-year-olds. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. And there's probably the rest of it in there. I said, well, why don't you just go get it? He said, well, I don't have any money. Right. I said, well, what's it going to take to get it out of there? He said, well, maybe $6,000. So I said, well, I can find I didn't even have $6,000 at that point. I said, I can find it. So I knew a guy whose kids went to preschool with Spielberg's kids, and he had a CD-ROM company, which was then the new thing in computers. And I said, well, you know, give me $6,000, we'll promote your CD-ROM, and we'll dig up this dinosaur. We did, and then I found a way to cooperate with the museum, have it all reconstructed there, which is a whole elaborate process. Mm -hmm. I said, I'll give you a quarter of the uh, royalty. I'll put the skeleton copies together, the casts, and we'll put them in museums all over the world, which we did. Um, for a while, it was at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, among other places. So it wasn't a great business, um, but I loved it. And my wife, who you know, mm -hmm. Valerie, who said in development, we were just starting to date then. This is give me an idea what a bad businessman I'm telling you. <laughs> so she had been in the, in the environment of, of business for a long time, raising money for, raised millions and millions. So we were just starting to date, and I said, could you help me organize this thing? I had a bunch of volunteers and part-time workers on these different projects. So she put up some big boards up here of uh, 
you know, like drawing boards. Mm-hmm. Here's this aspect of the business. Here's this, here's that. Here's exhibitions. Here's reconstruction of dinosaurs. Here's books. And she said, this one makes this much profit. This one makes this much profit. This one makes this much profit. You should stick with this one. And I said, I don't want to do that. It's not so interesting. <laughs> she said, well, why don't we date? And I won't work with you on business anymore. <laughs> Fortunately, that worked out great. Yeah, that's back um, to the girls in baseball, right? That's right. <laughs> so, she's the one girl now. I'm very happy. But but it just shows that I didn't have a business head for this stuff. Right. So that that's something that you've had to learn along the way, I take it. Well, yeah, and I didn't want to really learn it um, right. until lately. That's why I was telling you. So three years ago, and I hated robots because they're half size and they're clunky and they kind of shake and they, they have nothing to do with the real thing. And I think they cheapen your imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I went to a to central China because the best dinosaur quarry in the world happens to be there. In that town, for some reason, the Chinese government decided to concentrate the entire robot industry in the world. Wow. In this one little town. It's now a little town of 2 million people. But I went to a factory and I saw how they made these things and they had no mold. You know, if you make toys or whatever else, you have a mold and they all come out the same. Well, this was little old ladies carving foam like couch cushion into the shape of a dinosaur. Wow. Only they didn't know what a dinosaur looked like. So that's why they... Everywhere you go, you see these stupid dinosaurs because nobody <laughs> bothered to tell them the right way to do it. So I looked at this and I thought, oh, you know, if I send a scientist and I send an artist and actually I'll send a technician, I sent a guy who did special effects for Jurassic Park, take a look at these motors because they look kind of clunky to me and these dinosaurs shake. He went, he said, they're using the same motors on these 40 foot dinosaurs that power windshield wipers. Wow. So if you use a you know, different kind of motor, you can get smoother motion. You can get dinosaurs to be full size. So, you know, I started out, uh, I thought I'll try these out first. I'm not going to sell them to anybody before I know if they work. And they did last pretty well. And I put them in some of my exhibits. And then the breakthrough was just 15 months ago, I decided to start at the top. I called the Bronx Zoo, the biggest zoo. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, uh, where do you get your robot dinosaurs from? Because almost every zoo, every three years or so, will do dinosaurs because good or crappy, kids want to see dinosaurs. Right. In a museum, the science museum, only Egypt outdraws dinosaurs. I said, you know, would you like some better dinosaurs? They said, we were just about to decide on next year. Um, what do you got? And so I had some I could show them. And we signed an almost half million dollar contract. Wow. And plus... But so what I did then, which I can't believe nobody else does, I invited all the other zoos at my expense to come see them in the Bronx. So that made a huge impression. Here they are. Instead of the maximum previous size of a dinosaur was 40 feet. And I do them up to 120 feet because that's the biggest dinosaur. So it's a pretty dramatic impression right there. And they look better. So, you know, within a year, it went from zero to a million. We were on schedule before this unfortunate. Right. Illness, right to be six million this year wow. so from zero to one to six to you know the potential think of all the zoos there are other part was to realize okay here's the other part of this problem so in a general sense it's get your mind around the entire possible situation okay if they're doing dinosaurs every year but they need special attractions what else can i make that will occupy the other two years oh well people love dragons especially you know, things on television. Mm-hmm. 
and they love Ice Age creatures. Okay, I'll rotate these. And that way we can keep their business constantly with us. And how do I get them to switch from the existing one company that was very dominant? Uh, well, I'll take their head salesman and offer them a better job. So I took away the, the best sales force in the industry who already knew everybody and was trusted. Zoos aren't a business. They're a lot about personal relationships. So, and, and then we'll cut the price. Uh, we'll do it a third cheaper and still make some money, but we'll be implanted. The thing about this business is you rent them, but you only build them once. Right. So after that, you have no expense other than shipping. So it turns out to be a, a great profit making business. So it, it really is stumbling into an opportunity and recognizing in general. Uh, I'd like to say I did it more often, but <laughs> the two biggest projects I did got stolen from me. I built an entire oh, design for an entire theme park that would have been the second biggest theme park in the world. And the developers stole the idea. This was a, design with a dinosaur-based theme park? No, this was a sustainability-based theme park. Okay. There are no theme parks between the coasts. Big ones. Right. There's Disney World and, and Universal at either coast. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people don't want to travel that far. Uh, the concept of the theme park, the, the slogan is, you have to have a palm tree in order to have a theme park. In other words, the weather's got to be good enough that people want to be someplace warm. Exactly, right. But Houston, the weather isn't great, but it's warm, and there's a lot of money there, people that are well off. Mm -hmm. If you've been to Texas, there's nothing to do. Right. So. <laughs> the Great Plains. <laughs> <laughs> right. In many ways, so, very plain in many ways. Yeah, it's a void. So uh, they had this concept for sustainability theme park. I thought, I'll go to the Disney people because I also advised on Disney movies and theme parks. Mm -hmm. So I knew a bunch of the creative people. We put together a really good concept, went to the development. I found a guy, actually I met him on an airplane, I think, who was an economic developer. Total bullshitter. Mm -hmm. And we weren't getting offers from communities. You know, you need the economic development board of a local community who wants to bring in business to raise money for this. And, you know, I see the power of uh, advertising, false or true, in this. Mm -hmm. We went around, we were getting terrible offers, like a town that was either going to build a jail or have us. <laughs> you know, another town, it was really sad, where uh, something horrible had happened. There'd been a murder, a racial racially motivated murder and the whole town showed up this meeting and they were crying, you know, please bring this here because we have no money. And of course I wanted to do it. Right. <laughs> right. I felt so bad for them. And the business guys were like, that's not why you do this. Here. Right. Shut up. Right. So the developer that we had working for us told the state, called them up and said, we're only getting uh, lousy offers. And, and me, the, Mr. Lessum, you know, he could go anywhere in the country. He has billion dollar offers. And they were so naive there that they believed this and they volunteered Houston and $7 million wow. to do this. Wow. All on the basis of some guy telling them that they were jerks. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went to the local government to get more government support because there are all kinds of bonds and other things. I just love the story. I'm sorry. No, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good story. Um, it gets better. Um, and the guy said, we're going before the, the local board and they're resistant to giving any money. They're like, you know, if you want to come to our great community, 
you should put the money in to be in in uh, you know backwards town Texas mm-hmm. outside of Houston. So uh, okay, you come to the meeting, Don, and you you dress up in Gucci shoes <laughs> with a Rolex watch and uh, and a, and a you know cashmere coat. And uh, and come in and say you're you know you're Spielberg's right hand man. I said I don't own Gucci shoes. I don't have a watch. So I went and got like a you know a Rolex for two dollars in China, and uh, and fake shoes. Um, went there and and the guy when the guy with the state legislator said you know you should be giving us money to come here. I said why would I want to come to your <laughs> you know as insulting as I could possibly be. Not easy for me, you know, into your like backwoods dump with my exhibit that, you know, I could go to Disney with. So after that, we got like a zillion dollars in promises from the government. I got very excited about it. I had a large share in this whole thing that it would happen and I was going to have a, a villa, in, in, you know, up in a tree house <laughs> over where all the animals are in the park. I was, and then it turned out that. that they were so dumb. So they were so dumb in the government that they were working with me. That was the one thing. The second part is they never checked whether the developer actually owned the land. Wow. So wow. it turned out that it was all a fraud. Um, so what happened with the developers? Because there might be a good intellectual property discussion or, or lesson out of that. So they, they take your idea and they just go elsewhere with it. Yeah. So where I was naive was, first of all, take the money. And don't say, well, I'm going to hold out for this share of like 5% of nothing. Right. Because at that point, a lot of people believed in it. And, you know, you can do this, uh, get a share later on. Right. Right. You know, most of these things don't happen. And the bigger the deal, the more likely it is it's not going to happen. So if you offered something uh, immediate and uh, real, take it. So... In the end, I spent a bunch of money going across the country doing stuff with the promises that I was going to make all this money. Mm-hmm. Then as the thing fell apart, the local community said, we want the intellectual property. We're going to, we want to keep this idea. Mainly they wanted to save face. They had lost $7 million of, of the town's money. Right. They wanted to find some other sucker to do it. So they said, we'll give you your investment, like $50,000 back. You give us the intellectual property. So I, I lost the concept basically. Okay. Um, for that, but who knows if it ever get made? We did a worse thing the next time was I had an idea to do a in Times Square mm-hmm. for starters. Mm-hmm. There's another level of dinosaurs that can be done that's beyond anything that's ever been done. When you go to Jurassic Park, that's about the best dinosaurs you can see still 30 years after. But the technology is such that you could see dinosaurs without 3D glasses in an environment where you walk through it and you feel their breath and you hear their footsteps and they're full size in all directions, all around you in the dark. Perfectly possible. It's, it's, there's some technologies you need, but so I'd wanted to do this and I went to National Geographic and they were willing to lend their name to this. Mm-hmm. I got some investor guys, didn't do the research I should have done on them. And they found a way to squeeze me out of the whole deal. And they ended up making, they knew I would sue them if they did dinosaurs, but right off Times Square, it still exists. Uh, uh, a National Geographic ocean encounter experience. Wow. But wow. It's not nearly what we had in mind, and it's the wrong location. It's not right in the middle of Times Square. I'm not doing particularly well. But, uh, these are just examples of, you know, like some things work and maybe twice as many things don't work. If you make a ratio in business where two-thirds of what you do, well, one-third is something that's already making you money. 
One third is something that's in development. The other third is thinking about or spending some money in developing some new concept completely. That ratio can work. And that's a good way, I think, to sustain yourself as an entrepreneur. You've got to have something that's working already while you work on the other stuff. That's very interesting that you mentioned that. I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, we're we're doing this remotely, obviously, because of COVID-19. We're still under quarantine. Um, and we'll get to how that's affecting your business in, in a second. But I've been doing a lot of watching of uh, Masterclass and the great courses and just uh, consuming more and more learning type of like you, uh, I'm very interested in, uh, like you first and foremost, I have terrible ADHD and, and <laughs> <laughs> I'll chase the tail of almost any kitten that goes by. Um, and, uh, no, I appreciate the advice and, and it's speaking at a high level, I think to, to me, but also hopefully to the listening audience in the context of how to, 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 harness and focus all of that good energy, which can be very useful in a positive way and in a, uh, in a positive endeavor that can continue to engage that interest, but with a core focus and concept. Um, so I've been watching a lot of master classes and I was watching this one on Judd Apatow and, and writing comedy and getting into the film business. And if you listen to him talking, he sounds a lot like you. So I'd say you and Judd Apatow have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> <Funny>. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that he does say is that, um, you need to find a way to have your passion and chase your passion, but at the same time, keeping an eye on keeping the bills paid and, and sort of balancing things, if you will. And I, I love the way that you, again, sort of put it into this one third, one third, one third concept with a third of it being focus your a third of your energy, so to speak, on the endeavors that are already making you some money, at least to keep the bills paid and, and the rent paid and, and your relationships <laughs> intact. And then another third on things that are now in development, which is sort of, I guess, like, a, you know, depending on your your field, a six to 12 month or 18 month type of period. Yeah. And then the last third of, of your focus, where you're focusing your energy is on these bigger picture sort of what seems impossible right now, but which may be within striking distance in a year or two years or whatever. Am I getting that right, more or less? Absolutely. absolutely. I think it's a kind of a high risk ratio that maybe 50-50 might work better um, for most people. But, uh, you know, if, if you don't worry about the money, I always felt I can make it if I need to. Right. Um, you can take more risk. Well, you're doing it. You have a law. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Paying the bills, right? Exactly right. And a lot of times, uh, and this was a great segue, by the way, it's almost like we planned this. A lot of times uh, people people will, I think, think from an outside perspective, oh, he's doing the podcast, he's got a law firm, he doesn't look like he's very focused. But if you think about it, it's actually extremely similar in plan to what you described in the context that, you know, my law practice deals with how to cater to entrepreneurs and how to be a part of that because I find entrepreneurs very interesting. I like to work with entrepreneurially minded people, business owners, et cetera. And the majority of my, even my practice looks broad to the untrained eye. You know, we do uh, transactional things. We do some intellectual property. We dabble in franchising a little bit, uh, employment stuff, tax law, estate planning, et cetera. And to the untrained eye, it's, it's like, oh, well, you're in all these different areas. Why aren't you focused, for lack of a better term? 
And I think it's the opposite. I think it's a, a broad approach at being more inclusive of the problems that an entrepreneur might have. And I think also when you speak the language of the individuals that you're working with or that your target audience, for lack of a better term, you end up in a position where they feel more supported by you and they enjoy working with you more, <clears throat> which is a part of what I've been trying to build this practice around and been growing it around this, this mold. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that, that finding that one core idea and then spreading out so that, you know, spreading it out into a bit of variety makes it a lot more interesting than the rote, I do one thing in, incredibly well or, or very focused. So very interesting. Well, you did a good segue for me because I wanted to talk to you about Genghis Khan's business strategy for a second. Oh, please do. Yeah, this this will be interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love him because I went to Mongolia for dinosaurs and discovered the only other thing in Mongolia is Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> and he got such a bad rap. And, you know, journalists are always on a on a crusade to, to get the right story. Mm -hmm. It turns out he was brilliant and a civilizer. He's the reason we have pants and paper money, wow. violins and passports and diplomatic immunity and libraries and innumerable things that we think of Western innovations. He's the one who brought it to us. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that a guy comes from a, outcast in a, in a totally disorganized, brutal realm of Central Asia and has all these business concepts and, you know, statesmanship concepts that it's just out of whole cloth. It's uh, to me the greatest story there is of a person because he created the most, the largest, most peaceful empire in the history of the world coming from no place, with an army never bigger than 100,000 men. Uh, so uh, the principle that I was, you were just mentioning, which is getting the most out of everybody and making everybody, uh, you know, contributors to this, that was the key. He was the first guy who realized, oh, when I conquer people, don't subjugate them, put them into my army, give them positions of leadership, create a meritocracy, take the best people wherever they are. Wow. Uh, you know, the, his grandson takes Marco Polo and makes him into, you know, a big advisor. Wow. So, you know, your Chinese are bringing in Italian. Um, so, you know, that kind of concept of bringing people together, uh, and then give them opportunity and give them freedom. He had complete religious freedom in his empire. He gave, he realized the value of education. So he gave people tax breaks if they were educators. Um, he reduced wow. taxes altogether. Um, and he, you know, even the spoils of war, he would divide them equally. He let people choose their commanders. So uh, every level up. And then there was even an election for the Khan. So wow. you know, it's exactly the opposite of what this president is doing. <laughs> you found way. a way to sneak one in there. You found <laughs> a way to sneak one in there. No, I, I, I did. But actually, you know, even yeah. if, as a supporter of him, you must recognize that he thrives on divisiveness. He does. Yeah. I, I don't, um, I, I don't lean blue or red just by nature. I, I try to, and this isn't critical of anyone that people make their choices the way they, they choose to. I, I just try to think about, you know, what do I think of the two horses? We, you know, we're the greatest country in the world and I, I'm 
as patriotic and American as anybody else, but the greatest country in the world has two choices instead of one. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, but, but you, you know, know I, it is a way to motivate people by, you know, rivalry and anger. Right. And, exactly. And, um, you know, it's, it's a smart strategy, I guess. I think a smarter strategy, and that's what he did for expansion of your whatever, is to bring people together. No, I love that. It's so revolutionary, actually. And I never knew that about Genghis Khan. Now I'll, I'll be digging into that. that. That'll be my next distraction, most likely. Uh, it's hard to get him to sit for an interview, though. It's, it's <laughs> he might be hard to get on the podcast. Uh, I'll have to uh, channel a medium who then will have to channel him. And then right now, remotely over the internet, there's just too many channels and waves of energy in between us. You're right. It'll be too difficult. Um, but very interesting. So, so dynamic for, for someone from that long ago to be that much more <laughs> ahead of his times than where we are yeah. now. Right. And oh, by the way, as it affects like business for me, I wanted to do this exhibit. Museums had never done anything on Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. It's part of our neglect of him that we think of him as a barbarian. Right. So, you know, everything is so compartmentalized in business. Uh, another example is when I was working on Jurassic Park and they would send me out to the toy makers to kind of, you know, they brand their toys. So Mattel would be doing a Jurassic Park thing or Kenner and they want to make sure that there's some quality control. So they would send me, um, I got to Mattel and they said, why don't you do toys that are, have female dinosaur diggers based on real people and, and have, you know, it's all ethnic stripes and you could tie this to real digs and stuff. And they said, is this a boy toy or a girl toy? <laughs> I don't know. You know, boys and girls love dinosaurs. Well, no, we have to figure out which one it is. And what's what's the property that it's attached to? Right. You know? Right. You know, dinosaurs are perennial. They couldn't get their arms around that. So for me, making an exhibit about Genghis Khan is like, what's the predecessor for this? <laughs> I said, there isn't. The, the most popular issue of National Geographic in the last 10 years was Genghis Khan. Uh, you know, I know from other things that it will. Oh, yeah. No, it won't do it. The only way I could get the exhibit built was I went to a, a museum in Houston, actually, mm -hmm. and said, you can have it for free if you build it. Because I can't raise $2 million to do this, and I can't get together the places to show it. So they built it. You know, people came, and then I could market it. Oh, that's so great. that was, a, a you know, a kind of risk to take if you really believe in something. It took me nine years. Wow. To, wow. get, to negotiate getting all these artifacts that were related to him uh, to convince the museums to do it. But it's probably the longest running exhibit now in science museums. It's been going 10 years. It's still going. Wow. Now, a couple of questions related to that and related to your whole mindset in general. One, a nine-year project like that, that's going to be, you're going to face a lot of adversity. You're going to face a lot of difficulty, a lot of hurdles. A lot of rejection, of course, when you're asking people for money, when you're trying to put together funding for a project like that. What is your process for developing that from the from the earlier stages, let's say? So you get this idea, you say you want to do this Genghis Khan exhibit, and you think it'd be really cool. And obviously, you put a lot of planning and a lot of thinking into both the pre-production aspects of it and then the outcomes that'll, that'll come from that, because that's part of the pitch and the sale, right? Um, so where do you start when you're just compiling all of this data and information to try to put a project together? What's, what's your, your process as practically as you can put it into words? 
I, and the first step is, you know, what you're passionate about, because if you're not passionate about this, there's no way you're going to stick with it. Right. I didn't know it was going to take nine years and I probably wouldn't if I knew that. <laughs> the other, the other part of that though, is it's a kind of arrogance. I think maybe I, I know this thing is going to work. I am sure because I am interested in it. Therefore, everybody else is going to be interested. I mean, you have to know in the sort of realm of what, where's the evidence that people are interested in the subject from other things. But, you know, you have to first not take rejection personally, or if you take it personally, take it in a way that I'm going to show you wrong, um, which sounds silly, but there's got to be something that motivates you to persist mm -hmm. against, against odds. Because if, if it was with odds that somebody would have done it already. Um, so if you want it to do, or, you know, make people believe in a novel idea, you know, you have to feel it's right. Um, unfortunately for a lot of people who are really coming up with creative things that happens after they're dead, you know, people finally realize, Oh, that guy was a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little late. So, people still haven't even more. figured out how great Genghis Khan is. You're still trying that's to right. prove that. Imagine that. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've been a little more commercially driven than that. So you do have to find out what's, what appeals to other people. In terms of what you're asking about the process of putting it together, you find the people who know better than you. So I always would put together a team of the most expert people I could find. For one, I didn't have to hire them for more than this project. So I would just be paying them the one time that they're doing this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you, the best people are often really passionate about that subject, which is gonna help me. Like when I was building this giant dinosaur, there was a woman, she's unfortunately just passed away, just the, the best caster of dinosaur bones in the world. Well, you need that. I had to go out and find the person who is. And, you know, she had to go to Argentina. They didn't have the materials there. So this little 80-pound, 80 80-year-old 80 woman had to bring all this stuff to Argentina. Well, a normal person wouldn't do that. And then when it comes to it, I said, I'm going to pay you after the sale. I can't pay you any money for six months of work. Well, if you didn't really believe in the subject and of course the relationship that we have, right? you wouldn't take these kind of chances. So and it worked out great for her and she did a great job. So you find the right people and what goes with that is a passion about it that's willing to put up with you as an entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, doesn't have the kind of structure. This is the transition that every entrepreneur has a problem with. The business grows and then you become a pain in the ass. Right. Not someone who's inclined to keep an operation growing and have it really by keeping that, making that business structured. And I struggle with that now that I have several employees. I have to learn to back off because what I'm doing, it doesn't fit the world of business. And, uh, you know, big companies want things and I'm dealing with bigger and bigger companies. Right. By the book. And so some, some sort of nut who has this idea, it's not the place for him to make the deal. <laughs> so how do you, how are you dealing with those growth, growing pains, if you will, um, with your new employees? And I think you mentioned to me previously that a lot of, a large percentage of your employees in general are of a millennial-ish age, right? Is that right? So yeah, how are, how are you dealing with those problems, but also how are you keeping a, a millennial aged person engaged <laughs> in this time. 
I tell you, the one thing I can't stand about millennial aged people mm-hmm. is you say, can you call this guy? What? No, I, I don't want to call them. They're terrified of the telephone. Like we're terrified of computers at right. my age. Right. You know, like when I had students, I taught at Villanova briefly. I said, I want you to interview this guy. I said, it doesn't read in your essay like you talked to this guy. He said, no, we have a computer relationship. <laughs> what the hell is that? It's a virtual having a conversation. Anyway, that's the downside. Right. But what I learned a long time ago was hire somebody, the youngest, most inexperienced person you can find, which sounds totally stupid. But if you're doing something new, it's going to change all the time. That's the thing about a new business. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to be adept at switching all the time to figure out what works. You take a person who's done 20 years of the same job. They're very good at that same job. But when the job shifts, they can't do it. I've made that mistake with taking hiring very established people with very good salaries and they can't do it. Uh, but you take a smart guy or girl just out of a good school um, and you look for somebody enterprising uh, with a lot of different interests and they're perfect because then, you know, today I want you to concentrate on this. Oh, we're changing subjects tomorrow. And as long as they're not afraid, and that's what you try to build in them is no fear, uh, assert yourself, you know, those kind of things we're talking about. And a young person, you can, they can still learn this. That to me is uh, how you build it. And fortunately, with young people, I've made the right choices. And uh, so, you know, one is now pretty much running the company because she has a great business sense and is really organized. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I'm looking for is the opposite of me. Uh, somebody who's thinking about the practical end of things, who's thinking about the finances, you know, fill the gaps that, you know, recognize your faults and have somebody else do it. She's calm. I get people really jazzed up and some of them are really excited and the other half of them are pissed off. You know, and you can, I know you how can you make, feel. You can make it. Oh. <laughs> It's, I guess a lawyer does make half the people. Well, stuff. not 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 even just on that level. I was actually this is this is a little coincidental, I guess. Um, my wife and I today, while we were sitting down and having lunch on our couch for the what is it now the thirty fifth time or whatever. I don't even know how many days we've been locked in close quarters together, but um, we we were having that very discussion about how uh, you know our what I would now call our nature, Don, I'm lumping myself in with you, um, yeah, sure. uh, tends to be very polarizing. So people either love it and get really driven by our passion and, and constant distraction and tangents, or they, they get really turned off by it and, and it, it sort of flips the energy off for them, you know? And so we were just having that discussion about how it, it always comes from a good place. And I think you would agree with that too, just hearing the way that you're speaking, but certain people just don't, it, it's not a good mix for them. You know, when it's like, wait, we were just talking about this. What the hell are you talking about right now? <laughs> also, there's, people make this separation that I don't understand. It's only business, right? which often means that my ethics don't apply this situation because in business I could screw you over. <laughs> but it also means I'm doing this work. It's work. It's not fun. Right. Me, right. You know, I will never retire because there's no distinction between what I am and what I do. And, and there's no reason to stop doing. Um, but yeah, as you say, half the people don't want that. They, they don't want that risk. They don't want that. Right. 
they want the vision in their lives. They want to go home at five o'clock and it ends. Right. Um, you and I have really tough bosses, us, you know, um, that are driving us all the time. A lot of people don't want that. I, I can't even identify with that. Yeah, it's, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because to some degrees, there are days where you exhaust yourself because you push yourself so much to constantly be thinking about everything. Right. And and you, I'm sure you have the same thing. I have days where, not often, but but I have days where I'm just like, oh man, it would be so great to just have a nine to five and come home and not not spend my time thinking about you know how to move the podcast forward or, you know, do something different with the law firm to do some business development or, or I have this idea that I'm working out in the back of my mind creatively for something else completely different and unrelated. So, uh, yeah, yeah it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. And you know, it, it went back to this thing about hiring people mm -hmm. as I get the more and more I get older, I just don't want to deal with people who I don't like and like, okay, it's not all about the money. It never was for me, but right. also, I only have so much time left. Why would I want to work with somebody who's like a drone, right? Boring right. or annoying. So if you then the corollary is you find these people who are, are interested, period, just interested in things. And then their passion is taken, drawn from you because there are people who absorb that stuff in the environment and then they take it on. So I don't worry about the people who work for me leaving the job they're acquiring some skills but for a variety of reasons i don't worry about them leaving because they're getting more and more uh you know it's a it's a highly accelerated in a small company that's doing a lot of business right you end up you know you're a vice president of yourself but you're also doing really well and so to me it's it's the the sort of the, the basis of this is it's not the experience that counts it's the ability or you know, you can always create experience of people. You can't create ability. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. So now shifting to COVID-19, which is obviously <laughs> a large part of the reason that we're doing this remotely. And, right. um, and this is having a massive impact on your business in part because a lot, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, a lot of your business revolves around China to begin with, but then also clearly people can't go to exhibits right now. So um, and, and we're all stuck inside under stay at home orders. So how, how are you reacting to that? How are you adapting to that situation? And what are, what are the steps that you're taking to keep your business alive? I sit in the corner and cry. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> A lot of people are doing that these days. Certainly. Yep. Yep. No, I mean, it, we were doing incredibly well. Mm -hmm. We had like 700,000 in business in the first two months of this year. Wow. And then the bottom fell out and the bottom really falls out for us because yes, not only are these public venues not doing anything, but they're saying, uh, we gave you a whole lot of money. It took us a long time to come to a decision because we're a big organization. Right. So I went ahead because I knew the schedule was tight then to, to investing my own money to build these dinosaurs. Now the institutions like the Philadelphia zoo, mm -hmm. and I understand say, we're going to do it next year. Okay. Well, I already put that money in. I have to store these animals and I'm not getting the cash back for it. So it's a, a double whammy or a triple right, one right. in that way. Um, so it is hard, but we had enough reserve to do that. And then, and then here's another example of a combination of if you get a lucky break, that's half of it. The other half is knowing what to do with the lucky break. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, I have a friend who is in publishing. He has a nice summer home because he's in the business aspect of publishing, not the writing. And he brings <laughs> people there for the weekend. And he brought a guy who was an editor of like a house and garden magazine. Very nice guy. And we talked a little. The guy ended up losing his job. Well, I just heard recently from my friend that this guy had gotten a new job as the editor of Inc. Magazine. So I wrote him. I said, you know, Scott, you, you do stories about small businesses. This is kind of a funky small business. Doing dinosaurs. He said, yeah, so we'll do a profile. So actually, it's this month's issue, I think. There, there's a profile of the company. That's well, great. The, no, so the next step is you don't realize what's going to happen. Well, it's out there. The guy, the executive producer for Shark Tank, reads this magazine religiously because he's looking for people who have somewhat successful startups that he can put on the show who want to go to the next level. So the, he calls me. It hadn't occurred to me that, that she go on Shark Tank. And he said, well, you want to come on the show? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, well, what are you, what are you going to do? What's your thing? So that's where I had to think of what it is. So what it is is, okay, the zoo has no money, but they have a huge clientele. So as soon as they go back in business, mm -hmm. uh, if I build the dinosaurs now, I need money, but I can do a gate share with them. And I'll make much more money than the flat fee. Because the, when you don't have the cash, you got to give away more. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's like Spielberg and his interest, you know? So uh, that's the pitch that I have with them. And I think they're going to film in the end of August, and it is, okay, Mark Cuban or whatever, if you put in uh, $500,000, we'll be able to build 150 dinosaurs or 300 dinosaurs, and I'll give you 10% of the company, and here's why our profitability is growing at this rate. And that will greatly accelerate. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And some and of the cash talk about an amazing pivot, by the way, where you're, you're, and again, you're, you're filling me with so much information in terms of just the way that you reshape things in a way that I've never heard it before. Uh, so brilliant on that, on that level. But you know, talking about how half of it's half of it is getting a lucky break, then the other half is actually knowing what to do with it, knowing knowing whether a whether or not to go after that opportunity, and then b you know to execute on it, right? Which is kind of what right. you're talking about there, and really fascinating how you're finding creative ways to take what's a huge negative, and your company clearly is facing, as you said, a triple threat in terms of uh, adversity because of all of this. And then not to mention all the, the subtextual issues, not to bring you down, Donna, I'll try to keep it positive. Um, not to mention Thanks, all Tony. the, <laughs> don't start crying in the corner. We'll, we'll get through it. We're getting to the good part. And, um, and then, you know, just, just hearing you say, you know, yeah, you could sit there and sulk about it and what the hell are we going to do and all these things. But instead you, you just start reaching out to your network and saying, Hey, you know, do you know anybody who might know somebody or just involving yourself in conversations that might present opportunities? And all of a sudden it leads down this path, very similar to you back in the day, ending up on Jurassic Park on, on the right. set to help them where you just, you, you almost will your own luck in part because of your mindset, I think in a lot of ways, do you feel that way about yourself? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I mean, you could also call it pushy. 
I don't realize how pushy it is, but then, you know, Val will say, you're the most pushy person in the world. Yep. So now, now our wives have something in common. (laughs) (laughs) But so the idea is you do it as pleasantly as possible. It's it's not the end of the world. Press your idea. If you don't bug the crap out of people and you make it fun for them too. So, you know, in this third, third thing we were talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, this is not all my idea, but from my staff too. Okay, everybody's home. All these kids, well, they're not getting their dinosaurs live in any other way. So we're starting to do like little two-minute Ask Dino Don things where we're going to answer questions for kids. Brilliant. So, you know, I, this, that information's in my head. And, and so I can make 100 of these pretty quickly. All right, how are we going to monetize this? That's the next question. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about this to do it, but the people who do work for me are like, okay, we can be on Patreon if we have enough Exactly. Uh, yep. Of a readership, you know, we can uh, viewership. We can get ad money, and if we don't target kids specifically, we don't have to abide by all the very stringent rules mm-hmm. that apply to when you're doing stuff for kids. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're going to end up with something that I hope is like sort of Rocky and Bullwinkle, where there's a level of joke for adults, there's a level of joke for kids, and so you know, take this downtime and think of the. You know, what are the businesses that are doing well in this? And, you know. Absolutely brilliant advice. And I think, you know, um, I agree with you wholeheartedly, obviously. Uh, I've been doing a podcast for, you know, 60 some odd episodes at the time that we're recording this. And I, I, the other day, was just on the phone with a variety of friends and kind of just talking out my thoughts which I'm sure gets to the ad nauseum level at some point, but, um, but they, they were being kind enough to listen and let me ramble. And we were talking about, you know, sort of what are the next steps for this, to your point, you know, what you start to develop all of this content, but then what to do with it. But right now is such a ripe opportunity. You're sitting at home and look, no criticism. Uh, now we're seeing the reverse posts, right? Where the first two weeks of quarantine, everyone was posting about how you, uh, need to come out of this with a new skill or a new hobby. And now all of the, uh, the, the yang to that yin, if you will, are all posting about how, Hey, it's my personal decision. If I want to learn something or just uh, veg out on Netflix. Um, but yeah, to your point, this is such a, a great opportunity. That's a great mindset to have to turn around. Some adversity is just, okay, what can I control? let's start generating some content. Can't do anything else right now. So might as well start taking a positive direction towards the later, later period when we do come out of this and we'll hopefully have some momentum because of all this extra content that you're producing. So are you, did, did I hear you right that you're going to record roughly a hundred, two minute ish episodes video to release? And then we had some other ideas too, to do bedtime stories for kids where you're reading to them from dinosaur books that I wrote. So therefore I don't have to pay anybody the royalties to read the book or something. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Repurposing right. your content. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I have other, you know, I have a whole stock of ideas that haven't, yep. haven't had a chance to go and do. So right now is a great time to be writing. Right. Right. And so I have some book projects that I'm trying to launch in. For books, one of the great liberating things about having a business that works is that you don't have to think about what's the thing that will sell. Because once you think along those lines, I mean, you have to have the structure of what a book is. Right. You know, you can't 
I hear all these people, well, you should write, you know, if you're a writer, oh, let's write a, my story. Will you help me write my story? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I don't think that, that that's I mean, is what I want to do or a reader wants. Or I meet the, you know, people who do children's books. Oh, you do children's books too, Don? Well, I have a great idea for a story. Well, you have to learn that a children's book is 32 or 64 pages because they print them in 16 page uh, uh, signatures mm -hmm. and you have to have it, you know, the, the illustration has to match the picture and you have to research first who's done something in this category and which publisher to go to for that and who's the editor of that publisher. So there's a whole work element that goes into it. But given that, there are certain chances that you could take if you're not thinking, oh, I need that $2,000 or $5,000 from selling this, this children's book and instead... I want to write a dinosaur novel. Right. Is what I'm trying to do. Right. So, you know, and, and that could end up being Watership Down or it could end up being in my basement, you know. <laughs> you know? But unless you try, that's right. Chances are my yeah. basement. Unless you try, you know, like I don't know how to write a novel. Right. But, but I can observe, you know, you read enough books and you see what the formula is, you know. And I'm really interested in formulas too. Like, how you watch a television show and I never realized that they take the scripts and they're color coded and they just kind of shuffle in the four stories that are in the hour and create this thing. Or, you know, when you listen to music on the radio, oh, the songs are all two hour, two minutes and certain number of seconds. And they're, you know, even a symphony repeats certain times and then there's a coda. So you have to abide by the structure of these, what these things are. You can't write a movie script that's more than 120 pages or a film that's longer than two hours and 15 minutes unless you are a famous director. And then this is the film that doesn't make it anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't make money and they still let you do another one. Right. So uh, instead of thinking that the structure is limiting, think that, oh, it's a challenge and I can do something great within that structure. Uh, so, brilliant. You know, there are limits to what you can try creatively if you want to be, in quotes, successful. No, is you're you're. It's funny. It's like we're we're we were separated at birth and time periods, <laughs> but um, because we have so many similar interests, my one of my big passions actually on the side, and I think most people don't know this about me, is searching for these formulas. Right when I was in law school, I'll take a tell you a very quick story. When I was in law school, um, I'm going to break my secret, but I'm no longer in law school. So good luck out there, anyone who's listening that uh, that is going to law school or in law school. When I was in law school, um, I struggled my first semester, not, not in any horrible way, but, you know, it was just a new environment, right? I was used to succeeding uh, reasonably well in, in undergrad because of the formula that, that you're used to. And by then, you know, you've got it pretty well down because it's not that much different than learning style K through eight high school and then college. Um, but you get to law school and it's a completely different approach to learning. Uh, much more Socratic, much more heavy on the reading, which I was never a, a huge fan of just reading rote kind of boring cases from, you know, the 17 or 1800s or whatever. And um, so I kind of had to figure out a way to hack my way, for lack of a better term, using the parlance of the uh, of the millennial age. Um, and so I was kind of like, there's got to be some formula to this out there. And I found it. And I went from a semester of, you know, not failing out or anything like that. You know, uh, I'm fortunate that that I, I learned fairly rapidly most things. So I was doing okay, but not as well as I wanted to. And I went from just kind of middle of the park to Dean's List 
because of this one system I found. And it what really, was the system? So it's called, it's called Lose, L-E-E-W-S. You can buy it. It costs like 300 bucks and it's an audio tape and, um, and it comes with some exercises written in a, in a book. And it completely changed my life, by the way. I used it on the bar exam, used it all the way through law school, completely shifted everything for me. And it's written by, written and created by um, uh, Wentworth Miller II. You may know the name Wentworth Miller III from the show Prison Break. So his father is a law professor somewhere here in the Northeast, and uh, he created this system. So I stumble upon the system. I found it. I listened to the audio recordings. I did the exercises, which is rare for someone like me to sit down and, and do that to begin with. But, but I, I, I uh, for some weird reason, ha- was drawn to it in a way. Like, this is the answer, you know? And so I did it, and it completely, completely changed everything. And then to that end, fast forward to now, which I still kind of apply that same method, um, and uh, I actually recently just found out, I listened to a ton of audiobooks. I learned a lot from, from audiobooks. And I just found out, I had never heard this term before, that I may be a global learner, first and foremost, which is someone who learns small bits of information from a lot of different things, kind of like right. what you would assume is a jack of all trades, but then takes all of that information and essentially finds some synchronicity in it all. And is able to compile these like thinking outside of the box type of things. Um, either I, way, so there's a book. I still want to know what the system is, how it works. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You want to know how it works? So basically, he he mentions that essentially all law school professors, whether or not they know it, are looking for a specific style of answer. And so he developed a formula about how to, A, first of all, time management is a huge thing on the law school exam or the bar exam or any exam that's timed and generally tight, right? So bar uh, law school exams infamously are, you know, however many hours. So let's say a three-hour exam, and you might only have three essay questions. Well, if you're disorganized and scatterbrained like I was at the beginning of law school, um, you might waste an hour and a half going down the rabbit hole of the first question. And now you've cut yourself short on the other two questions, because theoretically, if it's three questions, it's a three hour exam. You should be splitting that. Assuming that they're all evenly weighted, you should be splitting your time an hour, an hour and an hour, right? Because otherwise you're cutting yourself short on the opportunity to get points on other questions. So one of the key things that blew my mind was you don't start, um, and I won't give away the whole system lest I be sued for copyright infringement or something, <laughs> although I'm attributing it to him. It is his system. But uh, so one one of the things is if you dive right in and, and succumb to this, just let me start answering this question and typing ferociously as much as much as I can, rather than breaking up the exam in a very regimented way. So if it's, let's say it's three questions, three hours, all evenly weighted. So an hour per question. And his system basically breaks everything down to the point where even the amount of time that you will spend outlining before you start typing anything is built into the system. And it completely was just mind blowing for me because, 
again, uh, you know, easily anything shiny will get me to, to chase it. You know, I'm like, I'm like a cat after a laser pointer, basically. And, um, and, and so that whole concept of no, you need to be super disciplined because the exam is set up to distract you, which is, again, the worst thing for someone like us. Um, but so just that kind of thing. And then the other thing is, obviously, in law school, it's you need to be very pragmatic when you're answering. So your answers, regardless of the way that that um, that the question is shaped, your answers should demonstrate that you're thinking about both sides of the argument and that you're, you know, kind of going through this process. So his system literally in the organizational phase in, before you start typing anything is literally you just draw a line down the middle. I, I'm dumbing it down and diluting it. I do recommend that anyone who's listening to this that's considering law school strongly consider buying this because it was such a game changer for me. They, You know what? They, I should contact him and say, hey, would you like to sponsor my podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so anyway, so part of it is you you just outline literally both sides of the argument on on a scrap piece of paper. And again, something that if you just dive right in and start typing, you become disorganized and lost right. in your in your own uh, rant, even though it's being typed out, and you lose a lot. And, and if you sit there and you spend whatever percentage of your time outlining and organizing your thoughts and just literally bullets, you know, a high level skeletal outline of both sides, you're going to at least refer to that as you're typing and you'll hit all of those notes and get more points on the exam. So very simple, you know, like what you're saying, it's just a very simple way of compiling this bigger picture theory. And it completely changed the game for me, completely. It was a complete life-changing thing. And now, fast forward to now, I'm very interested in uh, film production and, and those kinds of things. And so, you know, I, I dabble in storytelling books, script writing books like you, like what you were talking about just spoke a lot to me. And there's a book called Save the Cat. I believe it's by Blake Snyder. There's a few of those books. And it's basically a formulaic process of screenplay writing for movies. And once you sort of learn this system that he has set up, and, and it's like what you were talking about. So a movie, if it's 120 minutes, it'll be like 120 pages roughly. And, um, and let's say by page... 15 or so, meaning about 15 minutes into the film, you've got to establish what what he calls the promise of the premise. So what's the premise of the story we're about to watch? And then he gives you these formulaic things for character development, for story development. There's a, a yin and yang kind of element to every good story you've probably ever seen. And just these really interesting formulaic things and you start to overlay it, it doesn't make you, you know, you're not going to become Judd Apatow overnight just because of this, of course, but, right. but it, it reshapes sort of your thinking to your point. And, and those things for us, I guess, for people like us who, who think the way that we do and are as distracted as we are, uh, it, it helps you to shape the information in a way that that's delivered that much better. So yeah, I, I love that concept. Now, what, what formulas have you found in business that have helped you, if you don't mind? Um, I was just going to tell you a story if that's okay. That yeah, please, me, but, please. But it's the combination of the, this opportunity, sensing the opportunity and making the most of it. Mm -hmm. My roommate and, and friend in college decided after college, you know, that he was going to be a, a movie director. 
So I said, oh, yeah, good luck to you. Um, he said, I'm moving out to Hollywood. I said, you're going to be a waiter. If you, you, know, you can't just go and be a director. So he, he did realize that. And he went to AFI, American Film Institute. Uh -huh. You know, so if you're, if you're a good student, you could go to this thing and learn the skills of directing. Right. So he did that and he found a friend and they, you know, they sort of teamed up. They wrote a whole bunch of scripts and nobody's interested, you know, what you would expect. Somehow after about six years, they got an agent and he got them a meeting, a pitch meeting, you know, everything there is you get your five minutes. Mm -hmm. Nobody can be bothered to even read two pages. And they're with the head of NBC, uh, you know, evening television. The guy said, what's your idea? So they do their whole rehearsed pitch. Two, set, two sentences into the pitch. He said, I don't like it. What else you got? <laughs> they didn't have anything else. So they just said, okay, what are we going to do? So they start bullshitting about their lives, you know? Like I got a, you know, the wife in the story uh, wants a divorce and the guy is, doesn't like his job. And I said, I love it. What's it called? 30-something. Uh, uh, so <laughs> it got to be a long-running television series on the basis of just like, wow, oh, I better think of something in a hurry. Uh, amazing amazing so a sometimes lot, the idea is in there and you have it and you just need a pressure situation for it to come out that's oh that's a good thing. point yeah yeah and uh um yeah and you, you got to seize that opportunity how many times are they going to get in there with this guy right you know they probably should have prepared multiple ideas knowing <laughs> that was going to happen going in but anyway that, that's that worked out great that's awesome that's awesome all right, Don. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this was an incredible episode and I learned a lot. Hopefully the listeners learned a lot as well. How can people reach out if they want to work with you or if they want to hear about your upcoming exhibits? I know I'm looking at your website. You have them listed. So go ahead and give us all the contact info that you want to share. <laughs> the commercial. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you can go on to dinodoninc.com mm -hmm. and see what we're doing. Uh, and you can see how to reach us there as well um and don't think that you don't have a skill that's a double negative there but you may have a talent that you don't realize you have or we may be able to build one in you i just tell you a quick example that there's a young woman is very charming who fixed our couches we mm -hmm. needed an upholsterer and uh you know she's obviously a jack of all trades but she could do upholstery and then i saw how we build the dinosaurs and they have to be sewn together so i said well why don't you learn how to sew dinosaurs now she's the chief installer wow. for the company. So as Incredible. it applies to everybody else, your skill or your talent or your interest can have, uh, as they used to say on the old TV, repercussions, <laughs> repercussions, <laughs> ramifications that would, that would deal with that. So we, if you can't find the skill in, in, in what you already do that applies to this stuff, maybe we can. So uh, awesome. I'm always interested to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk soon. Oh, yeah. Good luck, Tony. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Sure. Bye-bye.